The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Well, we have something unusual in front of us today. I've been a Christian almost 22 years, and I have never heard a sermon on Genesis 19, 30 through 38. Some of you have been in this church for five or six decades, and you probably never heard a sermon on the text I'm about to preach on. I studied the uh, index of Spurgeon sermons, over 3,000 sermons, and not one on this text. I've got a a 12-volume set of 20 centuries of great preaching, and they skipped this one. Um, And so you may be wondering, as you look at what you just heard and anticipate what I'm about to do, you might wonder, why are we preaching a difficult and unpleasant text? And I've had to ask myself that question over the last three or four weeks. Uh, Wouldn't it be better to just kind of package this one together with Sodom and Gomorrah in a kind of an addendum and then just move on to chapter 20? But I couldn't do it. My general methodology here is verse-by-verse exposition. Any of you have been here long enough, you know that that's what I do. And so therefore, if I were to do that, skip it, I would probably have more complaints and questions than if I just preach right through it. So it's not just for love of ease that I'm doing that, but this is my ordinary approach. Very much I want to preach every text of Scripture as opportunity comes. Now, why would we be tempted to avoid this text? Well, it's an unsavory and unattractive topic. What happened in the cave between Lot and his daughters is hardly anything we want to talk much about. Perhaps you uh, parents in going through Genesis with your children may very well have skipped this part till later. Um, And so that's why there's a temptation. You know, it's a repulsive display of human nature. and We don't like that. We don't like the mirror held up to find out who we are, especially if it's an ugly portrait. And so it, it hits a little bit too closely to home, and therefore we do just kind of want to move on. Why must we not avoid this? Well, first and foremost, because of the nature of Scripture itself, what God has said about Scripture. In 2 Timothy 3.16, he said, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And that's what I think we have in front of us today, a useful Scripture for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. More than anything, we have to ask, why did God see fit to include this? Not so much, why did the pastor of First Baptist see fit to preach on it? Why did God want it in there? And when you start asking that question, then I think you're getting closer to home, what we want to do together on Sunday mornings. I believe in exposition. I believe in expository preaching. Dr. Moeller of Southern Seminary defines it this way. Expository preaching begins in the preacher's determination to present and explain the text of the Bible to his congregation. That might seem simple, but that's what I'm here to do. My task is to present and explain Scripture to you. Most modern preaching, commonly called topical preaching, begins with a human problem or issue and then works back to the Bible to try to solve that problem. I go exactly the other way, and so do other expositors. We start with the text and go out. Oz Guinness, in his provocative little book, Dining with the Devil 
talked about how audience-driven is much modern preaching. This is a quote. The preacher, instead of looking out upon his world, looks out upon public opinion, trying to find out what the public would like to hear. Then he tries his best to duplicate that and brings his finished product into a marketplace in which others are trying to do the same. The public, turning to our church culture to find out about the world, actually discovers there nothing but its own reflection. End quote. But by exposition and by you all coming and and me as well coming to just hear whatever the Bible has to say, it's totally turned around. By this approach, we are coming to God and saying, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And then we listen quietly and humbly. By this approach, we stand at the feet of God and, and say with our demeanor, we will hear whatever you have to say to us. And by it, we submit our minds and our wills to Scripture. And we let Scripture lead wherever it wants to. Really, it's the God of Scripture that we're submitting to. If we pick and choose the Scriptures we like and skip things that are unpleasant, then we really are ruling over the Bible, not letting the Bible rule over us. And as I've said before in Bible studies, I just think Bible study is a misnomer. We are not studying the Bible. The Bible is studying us. That's really what's going on. So that we can be transformed, that we can be under the scripture and learn how we need to grow and change. So that's one reason. Another reason is my role, therefore, as a preacher of the word. What am I called to do? What is my task here when I preach? Uh, I think 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2 put it this way. The Apostle Paul, speaking of his own ministry, said this. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy, end quote, from 1 Corinthians. I'm a steward of something entrusted to me, and it's required of me to be trustworthy with that. A messenger has no right or authority to change the message entrusted. He's not trustworthy if he does that, and so therefore we just have to take it. Now, therefore, I think a major center of corporate worship together is the hearing of the word unfolded just as it's written. I think it's a form of worship. Eric and I totally agree on this. The word of God must be central and the hearing, the the preaching clearly and the unfolding of every text of scripture, trying to understand what it says is a high form of worship. We are honoring God by this. Now, again, Dr. Moeller, talking about modern worship, had this to say. Persons move from congregation to congregation looking for the worship experience that will meet its perceived spiritual needs. Worship, then, is turned into just another consumer commodity. This focus on self comes from the sinfulness of the human heart. Christians leave church services asking each other, did you get anything out of that? Churches produce surveys to measure expectations for worship Would you like more music? What kind of music? How about drama? Is our preacher sufficiently creative? That kind of thing. Expository preaching, says Moeller, demands a very different set of questions. Will I obey the word of God? How must my thinking be realigned by scripture? How must I change my behavior to be fully obedient to the word? These questions reveal submission to the authority of God and reverence for the Bible as his word, end quote. I just think that's so true. That's what I want to do as a preacher. That's what I want to do in a church service. And that's what we're going to do together in Genesis 19, 30 through 38. 
Now, the central message of the scripture is that there is a holy God who is a mighty creator and a king filled with love and power who also is just and righteous. We are created in his image. We are sinful and rebellious against him. We stand under God's judgment. And therefore, we needed a savior. We needed Christ to come into the world, born of a virgin, born under the law, to die on the cross in our place to take our penalty. We need that. And we need to repent and trust in him for the salvation of our souls. That's what the Bible's about. That's the central message. And we're going to see many of those themes coming out of the cave uh, this morning, Lot and his daughters. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, God knows the human heart, and he has exposed it for us to see in the text of Scripture. And that's what we're going to learn this morning. And the first thing that we look at is the thing we've been mentioning over a few weeks now, and that is the completion of Lot's sad descent. We're looking at Lot as a warning. We see him as someone we don't want to be like. In some ways, he is an example to us, but we talked about that last time, in the way he was grieved and broken over the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. In that way, he was an example. But in most other ways, he is an anti-example. He is a warning more than anything. Now, you remember how Lot uh, desired to save his own life. You remember the angel uh, commanded him to leave, and he's fleeing. And look at verse 17 through 22 in Genesis 19. It says, as soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. That's what the angel told them to do. But uh, Lot didn't think he could make it. He was afraid or fearful or just weak. And he said, please, I don't want to run to the mountains. We'll never make it. It'll overtake me. Please, let me stay in this little town, Zoar. Let me stay here. And the angel agreed, said, very well, but go there quickly because we can't do anything until you're safe. And so he goes to Zoar, and God spared Zoar because of one righteous man. He spared that little town of Zoar, and there he was. But our text this morning begins with him realizing the futility of what he tried to do. And this is how it is. When we craft out a way through our own wisdom, our own imagination, a place of safety, something that we work out other than the word of God, it always ends up crumbling and falling apart. And so Lot comes to the very same conclusion, says, I can't stay here. And out of fear, he flees uh, to the mountains. Look at verse 30. Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. So he and his two daughters lived in a cave. Now, why was he afraid to stay in Zoar? Probably because he saw in Zoar the same pattern of behavior he'd seen in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he was probably afraid of God's wrath again. Either that, he was afraid of them, maybe they were angry or hostile toward him as an outsider. Who knows? Either way, he felt fear. So he went and obeyed the word of God through the angel in the end but only did it through faithless unbelief, through fear, through cowardice. And so he and his daughters, they ascend up to the mountains. And as he's ascending, he really is ready to descend morally. It's really a physical ascent, but he's really descending. He's reaching the end of the line up in the cave. And why? Because he's brought his greatest enemy with him, his own sinfulness. And he's brought his two daughters with him and their corruption. And they brought some wine, too along with some other things. And so they go up to the cave, and we see the end of Lot's slide into uh, immorality, really, and sin completed here in the cave. Uh, Jack Evans, who does work with prison ministry, gave me a great quote. Sin always takes you farther than you want to go and keeps you longer than you want to stay and charges you more than you want to pay. 
And that is true. Ron Hutchcraft put it this way. First sin fascinates you, then sin assassinates you. And we see that happening with Lot. It all began with him standing on the ridge and looking down over that lush ground of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding area. He and Abram were, were having some kind of a quarrel over whether they could stay together. And so he says, look, you choose where you go and I'll go wherever you don't go. So Abram being very gracious to Lot, Lot looks down and chooses what's easiest and what's more comfortable for him. It was a lush green plain like the garden of God, and so he went down there. And it says initially he pitched his tent toward or near Sodom. He's just out in the outskirts. That's where he begins. But it isn't long before he's actually living in Sodom itself in Genesis 14. He's swept up in the events of Keter Lamer and that king that sweeps in and he is captured, he and his family and they're, they're carried off as captives and Abram has to get on a horse with 318 others and go chase him and, and attack them at night and rescue Lot and gets him back. Now at that moment I'm really thinking that would have been a great time to not go back to Sodom. Wouldn't you? Or wouldn't you take that as a warning? It's time to move out of the city. He's had ample time to see what it's really like there. According to 2 Peter 2, he was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. I have to imagine that was already going on at that point. Why didn't he leave? There was the, the, the tie had been severed. That was a good opportunity for him to just go with his uncle Abram, but he didn't. He moves back into, into Sodom, and he sets up there again. And he, gets, he ends up immersed in Sodom society, sitting by the gate in perhaps some kind of an official function. It says, as I mentioned in Scripture, he's tormented daily by wickedness. In one way, that is to his credit, but in another way, it's to his discredit. Why didn't he leave? He should have led his family out of there. He allowed his family to become completely immersed in Sodom's way of life and corrupted to their core. The night that the angels came and stayed with him, he offered his two virgin daughters to a lust-crazed mob to save the men who had come into his house. And so the slide continued, and he's going to reap the result of that in this account here, I believe. He's highly reluctant to leave Sodom. The angel had to drag him out to save his life. He begged for a break from the harshness of the fleeing for his life, ends up staying in Zoar, and now he's leaving, and he's up in the cave. That is the descent. Now, what is the warning to us? The warning is don't be like that. Be aware of what's happening around you and be aware of what's happening as a result in your own heart. We live in a place like Sodom. That was, that's been my point the last few weeks. We live in a place like that. And we cannot say it has no effect on us to live there. You can't say it's not changing me at all. Any more than somebody can stand out in the sun and say it's with no sunscreen or anything. It's not affecting my skin. Of course it is. And you need to take all the precautions you can that your heart not be hardened. It says in Hebrews 3, by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin doesn't come at you and say, hey, I'm sin. I'm going to assassinate your soul. That's not what sin does. It comes deceptively, promising pleasure and comfort, promising something good. And in the end, it owns you. And that's the thing we see with Lot. The descent. Now, we also see with him uh, the fact that Lot was perhaps one of the worst fathers in the Bible. Lot uh, is a terrible example of a father. And I'm speaking, as I have before, to you who are fathers and you have a specific responsibility. You need to provide for and protect your families physically. That is obvious. A man who doesn't provide for his family physically and materially, 1 Timothy 5 says, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 
But how much more valuable are your children's souls than their bodies, you see? And so not only are we to be providing physically for our children, we are also to be evangelizing and discipling them, preparing them that someday they're going to meet their maker. Someday the children are going to stand before God and give an account for their lives. So therefore, a father's lips should speak the word of God. A father should be a priest for his family. He should lead his family in righteousness. He should be an example of godliness. And he should protect his children. In this case, there's a father-daughter relationship highlighted. And we can even zero in on the sexual aspect of that. That a father is to be protecting his daughters sexually. Protecting their purity. Because that's really what this account is about. It says in Deuteronomy 22, if a young woman is found to have been promiscuous while in her father's house, she has to bear the guilt and the penalty for her sin. But it's done right at the father's doorstep. There's a clear link there between the daughter and the father. This is a biblical way of thinking. I know it's not popular in the world today, but it's there. And therefore, a father has a responsibility to pro- protect the sexual purity of his daughters, her chastity. And, you know, Lot did that for a while because they had never slept with a man. And so he had protected his daughters until that terrible night when the angels came. And he suggests a terrible thing. Here are my two daughters who had never slept with a with a man, have them and do whatever you want with them. What is that? How could that possibly have worked? Was there not a way to be both hospitable and also protect the daughters? It's a very sad thing. And I think that this morally confused father polluted his daughter's view of themselves that night. It must have had an effect. And I think it gets reaped here in the cave. And what were the daughters thinking? What was the older daughter thinking? Now, some commentators say that the older daughter believed that the whole human race had been wiped out as in the days of of Noah. Look what she says in verse 31. The firstborn said to the uh, younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Now, the the Hebrew word for earth, Eretz, can either mean region or land, or it could mean the whole earth. And therefore, it's a little bit hard to know exactly what she's thinking when she says this. Does she believe that there's nobody left on earth and so that they're the only ones? And so this actually ends up being kind of a clever way to keep the human race alive? I don't think so, actually, because they'd already been in Zoar. And Zoar had a community of people. Yes, it was small, but there were people there. And so it's pretty clear that God is protecting uh, Lot and his family, and Zoar was protected. And so I have a hard time believing they really thought there was no human being left on the face of the earth. In any case, they should not have violated their consciences and sinned in this way. And look at how the older daughter is leading the younger sister into sin. It's her idea. She's taking the initiative. She sets the bad example. And then she says, follow my example. This is what I did, now you do it too. Do you see it? And in that way, she's violating the responsibility that she had to her younger sister. To set an example for godliness. The whole thing is a very sad uh, exposition of the human heart. And then finally, we see the devastating effects of alcohol. The devastating effects of alcohol. Now, scripture partially exonerates Lot by twice saying he didn't know at all what was happening. He says it twice. Clearly, it's in there for a reason. Lot had no, no inkling of what was happening. But it's also pretty obvious that he's got a weakness for drink. Do you see it? The daughter knew right away what way to get the father. She knew that the father would never agree 
So that much his moral standard was there. But he had a weaker standard in another way. It's almost like he's a fortress, walled fortress. And you're not going to get in that way, but there's a, a weakness around the back. And, so she, and she knows it too, doesn't she? She's aware of the weakness and she goes after it. She, she comes around and says, you know, let's get our father drunk. Now, I don't know any daughter that can force the father to get drunk. It was a choice he made. And so he got drunk, he drank, and my understanding is that alcohol content was so low back then, you had to really know what you were doing. You had to go after it in order to get drunk, and that's what he did. So he, he was drunk, and then his daughter lay with him. And so wine destroys judgment. Alcohol makes the unthinkable actually doable. And then you wake up the next morning and say, what have I done? What happened here? It says in Proverbs 23... 29 and following, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has strife, who has complaints, who has needless bruises, who has bloodshot eyes, those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Your eyes will see strange sights, and your mind imagine confusing things. You'll be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on top of the rigging. They hit me, you will say, but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. When will I wake up so I can find another drink? That's Proverbs 23. And that's what alcohol does. It breaks down your reserve. It's it's like, again, if you're the walled city, it's just opening the drawbridge and saying, come on in. And you don't even know what the effects are going to be. Do you see the similarity between this story and that of Noah after the flood? You remember how Noah planted a vineyard and then he got drunk and lay exposed in the tent. And it was his children that sinned against him in that weakness, just like in this case. And then there are lasting issues for generations as a result. And so watch out for alcohol. It says in Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk on wine which uh, leads to debauchery, instead be filled with the Spirit. So that's what happens with Lot and his sad descent. Now, what happened as a result? What are the devastating uh, effects uh, of the sin in the cave? Greek mythology has an interesting theory on how this world came to be infected with all of its ills. Uh, It seems that Jupiter, the king of the gods, was very angry at man for stealing the secret of fire. And so he decided that he's going to send a box to a woman named Pandora. And inside that box, he puts all manner of ills and sicknesses and diseases and sins and wickedness. And it's tied up with a beautiful bow and given to Pandora. The implication being, don't open the box. Well, she's left alone with the box. She hears whispering inside. She she unties the rope, lets it slide to the ground. She's hearing more whisperings. Open up, open up, let us out. Her curiosity is peaked. She opens it up just to look, and out they come. They're like all these brown moths, and they have stingers. And they begin stinging her and flying out the the door and the window to infect the human race with rebellion and sin and wickedness and disease and grief and sorrow. That's the story from Greek mythology. We know it actually came from Adam and Eve and from the effects of original sin. But it's amazing, all of the things that can flow out of a small event. All the evil that can just run out of the cave. The wickedness that comes. Now what happened? Well, both the daughters became pregnant by their father. Um, The older daughter uh, had a son whom she named Moab, which means from father. 
and the younger, uh, Ben-Ami, son of my people. These were the forefathers of the Moabites and of the Ammonites. And they're going to come up again and again and again in Scripture. They are two of the most troublesome races against the people of God. They are constantly opposing the children of Abraham. Now, Abraham is often another place when Lot's in the cave with his daughters. Little does he realize that his descendants will be greatly troubled by what happened in that cave. Oh, the depths of the wickedness of the human heart and the effects of sin. Sin has lasting effects. Now, what devastation came from the Moabites and the Ammonites? Well, first was constant opposition and even warfare. They just hated the descendants of of Abraham. They hated the Israelites. And when God was bringing the Israelites out of Egypt and onto the promised land, they opposed their passage, and Balak, the king of the Moabites, actually hired uh, the prophet, the strange prophet Balaam, and said, put a curse on this horde of people. They're they're like an ox that's going to lick up all the grass in the surrounding area. We don't want them eating our food. We don't want them drinking our water. Put a curse on them. And you remember how Balaam can't curse him. No matter what he does, God turns it around into a blessing. And so he opens his mouth to prophesy and to say a curse, and it's only ever a blessing. But it was Balaam who made a suggestion. He said, I have, a, I have an idea. Why don't you send some Moabite party girls down in and around the people? We'll get more to that in a moment. But that was Balaam's idea. But you see the opposition and the hatred of the Moabites and the Ammonites against the people of God. And it erupted into open warfare once Israel was established in the promised land. David had to put down the Ammonites and the Moabites frequently. Frequently they would organize themselves in raiding parties and come over into the promised land and make life just miserable for the Jews. Again and again the Jews had to fight the Moabites and the Ammonites. The second great attack I've already hinted at, corruption by immorality. And so the Moabite party girls came down and they enticed and lured the Israelite men into sexual immorality and into feasting and thirdly into idolatry. And the two went together. Did you ever wonder why the Israelites were constantly tempted toward idolatry? Well, there were earthly benefits, so to speak, sensual feasts and uh, immorality. It just was pleasing to the flesh to worship these false gods. And so the Moabites came down and they lured Israel into worshiping the Baal of Peor. In Numbers 25, the story is told, while Israel was staying at Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods, and so Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor when the Lord's anger burned against them. And so this is corruption by sexual morality and also by idolatry. The two went together. And it, and it reached as high as the wisest man who ever lived, King Solomon. You remember him? He had a taste for foreign women. And he married women from all over the place, including Moabites and Ammonite women. These were the very ones who brought Baal worship and the worship of Chemosh, the Moabite god, and the worship of Molech, who is the detestable god of the Ammonites, Molech was especially bad because you worshipped him by sacrificing your children in the fire. And Solomon built a shrine to the god Molech. It says in 1 Kings 11, King Solomon loved many foreign women, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. 
And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Eventually, Solomon's descendant, Manasseh, even sacrificed one of his own children, who could have sat on the throne, to the god Molech, burned him in the fire. This is the sin that the prophet Jeremiah said, I will never forgive. And so he deported Israel out of Jerusalem as a result of that. And it came in through the Moabites and the Ammonites. Do you see all the evil that has flowed out of this cave with Lot and his daughters? Nothing but trouble. And therefore, Moab and Ammon were rejected by God to the 10th generation. Deuteronomy 23.3, it says, No Ammonite or Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the 10th generation. Now, I would say this whole sermon has two points, two major points. Number one, the great pain and grief and agony that comes from sin. Watch out. It's an armed bandit that wants to come into your life. Number two, what God can do with that, nonetheless. He can take the most sinful and shameful thing and use it for his glory. He's good at that. Now watch what God does as a result of what came out of that cave. We've already seen the damage and the curse. But I say to you this morning that Jesus Christ was a savior born from wickedness and for wickedness. And he is God's answer to Lot and the daughters in the cave and all the wickedness of my own heart and yours as well. You may have come in here this morning with a sin you're ashamed of. How do you think Lot felt about what happened with his daughters? Shame. But look what God can do with it. Look how he can transform it. It really has to do with something as simple as the genealogy. You know, I know you're not all that interested, for the most part, in the genealogies in First Chronicles. All right? I won't ask for a show of hands how many who would say that the first half of First Chronicles is my absolute favorite scripture. I just really enjoy those long lists of names of people I've never heard of in my life. Okay, but genealogies can have a lot of good truth in them. And here it shows what I call the tributaries to the physical birth of Jesus. The most awesome river on the face of the earth is the Amazon River. It was first discovered by a man named Amerigo Vespucci, first discovered by the Europeans, by a man named Amerigo Vespucci, for which our country is named. He was an explorer, and in 1499, he was sailing off the coast of Brazil. And as he's coming down there, 200 miles off the coast, he's totally surrounded by fresh water. Fresh, drinkable water in the middle of the ocean. He said, now this is strange. So he follows the fresh water back to its source along the Brazilian coast. And he found the mouth of the Amazon River. Between 4.2 million and 7 million cubic feet of fresh water pour into the Atlantic Ocean every hour as a result of this river. There's no river even close to it. And how does it have so much water? Well, basically, the 40% 40 of South America contributes, the landmass contributes to the Amazon River. There are 17 tributary rivers that are over 1,000 miles long that pour into the Amazon. 17. More than 12 nations contribute water to the Amazon River. Now, if you look at this massive system of the Amazon River... I tend to think of Jesus' genealogy that way. All of these things kind of contributing to the physical birth of Jesus. Who do I have in mind? Well, I have in mind Ruth, the godly Moabitess. She was a descendant of what happened between Lot and his eldest daughter. 
But unlike her, she was a godly Moabitess. She loved the Lord. And when she had the opportunity to marry a man from Judah named Malon, she married him. Malon died. And then her mother-in-law, Naomi, wanted to go back to Bethlehem because she had heard there was food there. And she said, why don't you just go back to your gods and you stay there. Orpah, your sister, is gone. You stay with your gods, Molech and Chemosh and Ashtoreth and Baal. You just stay with them and I'm going to go back to Judah. But Ruth said something that changed the course of history. Ruth 1.16, she says, she says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your God will be my God and your people will be my people. And so she, cl- she cleaved together with Naomi, but especially with the God of the Israelites, Yahweh. She became a convert, and she was a godly, submissive, loving woman to her mother-in-law first. She worked hard. She gleaned in Boaz's field. Boaz took notice of the way she lived her life. He, he was interested in her. She initiated the possibility of being remarried. He accepted that. They were married together. One of the best examples of a godly couple you'll ever find. Husbands, you could do, you could do uh, incredibly well to imitate Boaz in his gentleness and his strength and his leadership. And Ruth in her godly uh, humility, her submission to God and to authority. And so they're a beautiful couple. And they have a baby named Obed. Obed has a baby eventually named Jesse. And Jesse had a son named David. And so there's a tributary into the, into the uh, physical birth and descent of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus was descended through a Moabite woman. And it had to be through a woman because no Moabite man is welcome in the Lord's assembly. Do you see that? had to be a Moabite woman. Well, I already knew all that, but what I didn't realize is King Solomon. Now, Solomon had 700 wives of royal descent and 300 concubines. Now, ponder that for a moment. 1,000 women to keep happy. I don't know how in the world you could see why you'd need that kind of wisdom just to know who they each were and what it was like. Where was the nature of the relationship? What was the last thing we talked about? I don't know how in the world you'd keep track of it all. But you could well imagine that with a thousand royal wives and concubines, he had numerous sons he could have chosen to be his successor. The Bible didn't tell us how many, but just imagine how many uh, young boys there were that he could have chosen to be his successor. He chose Rehoboam. Rehoboam's mother was an Ammonite. This is a striking thing. And so we have a Moabite contribution and an Ammonite contribution into the physical descent of Jesus Christ. Do you think that's an accident? Does not God delight in turning something wicked and foul and shameful into something glorious and majestic? Jesus is truly a savior born from wickedness. And as a matter of fact, if our hearts weren't wicked like that of of Lot and his daughters and all of the people on earth, our own hearts, we know it well, then Jesus would never have needed to come. He wouldn't have needed to have been born physically. But he is a savior born from wickedness because our wickedness made God send him into the world. And it was also that Jesus was a savior born for wickedness. He died as a result of wickedness. He ministered and died surrounded by wickedness. All of Jesus' miracles were a reversing of the curse of sin. When he would heal a man born blind or somebody with leprosy, when he would, he would feed the hungry, he's reversing the curse, isn't he? Do you see it? He's taking wickedness on and he's defeating it. That's Jesus. That's what he does. And in the end, wickedness and Christ had a battle. And wickedness killed Jesus. Think about it at the human level, 
All right? What motivated the Jewish leaders to have Jesus put to death? Was it not jealousy? Was it not fear? Was it not wickedness that motivated them? What motivated Pilate to declare three times that Jesus was innocent and yet scourge him and hand him over to be executed? Was it not wickedness? Was it not cowardice and a desire to hold on to his position as governor? What was it that motivated the Roman soldiers to kill an innocent man at the human level? Blindly carrying out orders, right? Wickedness. But what was it that really killed Jesus? Was it not that God took our wickedness from us by faith and put it on Jesus and then struck him with his wrath and that's what killed him? Was it not wickedness that put Jesus to death? And Jesus on the third day was raised from the dead, triumphing over wickedness and sin and giving us a gospel of peace and of righteousness and hope even in the face of the grave that death and wickedness and sin will never stop. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not and never will overcome it. It says in Isaiah 53, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is a Savior born from wickedness, and for wickedness. And therefore, where sin abounds, you see, grace abounds all the more. That's the triumph of grace, the triumph of the gospel. It's my great joy and hope every day when I see my own sin and wickedness. And I want it to be yours. What applications can we take? First, will you please learn from Lot's dreadful descent? Will you take a warning from him? Sin hurts. Sin devastates. It kills people. Lot's wife died. His sons-in-law died. He lost all of his possessions. Sin destroys. It hurts a lot. So watch out and see what's going on in your heart. Are you watching things on television, looking at things on the internet, reading books, having attitudes toward money or power or position or whatever that you know are not in line with Scripture? Repent while there's time. Get out of Sodom while there's still time. You understand what I'm saying? I don't say you have to leave this country because you're going to find sin whatever country you go to. It really has to do with a spiritual escape. So you make a commitment to have a battle against sin and not yield. Secondly, beware the dangers of alcohol. This would not have happened if if Lot had not been drunk. You understand that. And so watch out for that sin. Thirdly, See the trouble that can come like Pandora's box from one incident. Be very careful how you live. Be very careful the things you allow yourself to do. It was a river of trouble for Israel that came out of that cave. Fourth, fathers, take responsibility for your daughters. Love them, cherish them, protect them, disciple them. And parents for children. This is a subset of that larger discussion. We are responsible for the spiritual well-being of our children. Let's disciple them. Let's evangelize them. But the central lesson I want to leave you with is that grace wins. The thing you're most ashamed of in your life, God is able, if you repent and bring it to the cross, he's able to do something incredible with it. The greatest wickedness and sin that has ever occurred is the death of Jesus on the cross. And God is using it for my salvation and for yours. Trust in him and follow him. 
Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.